Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, John is joined by Mark Schweig. Now, about half of all transactions in the United States features a private equity group as the buyer. Sometimes these acquisitions work out well for the seller. We've recently published several stories of entrepreneurs who profited handsomely by selling to private equity. I'm thinking of Joseph Marshall, who sold his vet clinics to a private equity group doing a roll-up. Joseph actually tripled the value of the equity he rolled. Or Sarah Dusek, who sold her glamping business to a private equity group when it was doing around $3 million in EBITDA, only to have the company explode in value to more than $100 million after she did the deal. But along with success stories, there are also failures where selling to private equity group ends up backfiring. And today's episode is one of those cautionary tales. It features Mark Zweig, who built the Zweig Group to a three-time Inc. 5000 honoree and $19 million in revenue when he sold out to private equity. And as you're about to hear, that's when things went horribly wrong. Buckle up and enjoy today's episode with Mark Zweig. Enjoy. Mark Zweig, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John. How's he doing? I'm good. Tell me the origin story of Zweig Group. What was your original business model in the early days? Uh, the original model was basically the model that's still followed today. Um, our genesis was as a consulting firm, um, and we had a pretty limited uh, number of offerings Um uh, including business planning, executive search, uh, retained um, HR-related stuff, and maybe some marketing-related consulting. And it was aimed at the architecture and engineering industry, which is a large, fragmented industry made up of, you know, 100,000-plus companies, average one with 15 employees or so. Um, although our target client base was Typically, you know, firms with, let's say, between 100 and maybe two or 3,000 employees, that was sort of the sweet spot. The smaller ones thought they couldn't afford us, and the bigger ones thought they could do it all on their own. But that's how it really started. And it, it morphed from that um, into other um, services and certain products. Tell me more about that. What, what, what products did you have? Well, the first product that we offered, um, we had a free newsletter um, that went out to initially 250 people in my Rolodex. I had a non-compete with for subscription-based newsletters, um, so I couldn't charge for it. Um, that went out monthly, and over a period of three years, that grew to about 2,300 subscribers. And then we turned that into a paid vehicle. Um, it immediately got 500 subscribers at a couple hundred bucks a year. And eventually that became a seven-figure business in itself, um, the newsletter. But um, that was sort of the, the, the first product, although that was free. The first product we sold was a research report that we did on the principles of these companies, the owners. Um, and we surveyed everything. You know, there were a lot of financial surveys out in our industry, and there were salary surveys. 
we just um, aimed at the owners and we found out everything about them um, down to what their political orientation was, uh, you know, how many times they'd been married, what kind of vehicle they drove, what color it was, how big their office was. I mean, we got into lots of detail and we sold that. We put that in a book and we sold it. Um, today, the company has probably 20 or so of those. So the research is a big part of what they do. And and they have other online research platforms, you know, stuff. Then we so started cool. doing- So you had this focused on architectural engineering firms where you yes. were helping them in the early days with consulting, business planning, executive search and marketing. Mm -hmm. What prompted you to productize? Well, the I mean, A- um, Everything, uh, who doesn't like getting MasterCard, Visa, and Amex deposits while you sleep? So, you know, having, having some kind of revenue that wasn't tied directly to an immediate effort or time expenditure is always nice. Um, but the other thing was that for us, it really gave us the perfect business model in that um, we spent all of our marketing dollars on the products. And again, you know, that expanded to books, magazines, uh, seminars, whatever. But so in historically, um, after the company hit a certain level of maturity, it was, you know, roughly 60, 60%, 65% consulting and 35 to 40 products. And it's still true today, which is really amazing. Hmm. Um, after all the years the company's been in business. Um, but so by promoting the products and initially it was with direct mail and we budgeted 40 percent of the product revenue um, on direct mail and by spending that 40 percent it drove um, the sales of the products and then it made the phone ring with consulting opportunities so in so, that way they, they kind of fed one another in a sort of symbiotic relationship absolutely i've Isn't always felt yeah, I always felt we had better products than just people who made products and didn't do consulting. And at the same time, our consulting benefited from, you know, the research and all the interaction that you had with clients to put a, a weekly newsletter together. And I mean, you can imagine, I mean, it was just a constant source of information flowing. It was unique information that other people didn't have. I can also imagine there being conflicts potential friction between the two businesses at times i'm thinking you know it, it the temptation to preference consulting clients in the book give the big booth space at the event to the <laughs> highest paying consulting client like how did you handle those inherent i don't know conflicts of two very different business models that would arise i would think daily there really wasn't that much conflict. The biggest conflict was was with executive search. Um, the fact that you had a lot of information on your audience and then you could potentially be recruiting from them. That was probably the biggest right. source of conflict. The way, you know, the way we handled that is we really made a distinction between a client and a customer. We never recruited from a client. But I'm not going to say if you bought a $39 book from us that we might not, or your firm did, that we might not try to recruit somebody in your firm. That was one way we dealt with it. I think the other way was we, we really were very selective about the clients we worked for. 
you know, we had really big relationships, like our biggest relationship paid us about 1.4 million a year. And, and so, you know, it it sort of kept things um, manageable in a way, because we weren't working for everybody. Um, But that was the biggest conflict. I guess the other conflict never really had issues about giving favoritism to clients or whatever, because if we wanted to do that, we could do that. I mean, there's nothing stopping us. Um, But the biggest, uh, the other issue that later on led to some problems for the company after we sold it the first time to private equity, um, you know, the consultants are the ones who do the seminars. Um, They're the primary deliverers of speakers. Um, And, you know, they put everybody on a separate um, incentive plan. So then the consultants didn't want to use their time to make money for the seminar people or the seminar people didn't want to have their P&Ls impacted by use of the consultants. And that created some problems. I mean, that was just a small part of why they really plummeted after we sold them. When we owned the company, we had no special, uh, you know, uh, P&Ls for any unit. Everybody was treated the same, and we had one company bonus program, and that's what everybody participated in, period. I'm glad you brought up the sales. I, I want to go there next. So how big did you get this company before you sold it to private equity? Like in terms of revenue, where, where were you guys at? Well, it, at its peak, it, it got somewhere around 19 million in revenue, something like that, like 120, 130 employees. Um, we had really good salaries. We had really good company vehicles. We had really great insurance. We paid 25% of our profits out to all employees through the payroll. Um, and we had owner profit distribution. So it, realistically, after everything was loaded in, we generally made about a 10% profit and we grew about 30% annually. And I was completely happy with that um, because, you know, there was nothing funny going on. There were no personal stuff running through the company. Um, we had audited financials probably for the last five years we were in business. Um, and we paid decent salaries. Um so, you know, there were others who would pay a lot less than we did and maybe show a higher EBITDA. And thinking about that time, so you're 19 million in revenue, 130 employees. What was the triggering event that made you decide to sell? We wanted to sell the company from the very beginning. It was built to sell, John. Um, to use your, your what terminology. Made you want to I sell? mean, because that's what we do as entrepreneurs. You know, I mean, I don't know about you, but I get bored easily. I don't want to do the same thing my whole life. And although I have done a lot of the same stuff most of my life, but done a lot of different stuff too, as you know. Um, so, yeah, the goal was to build up and sell in 10 years. And it took 16 and a half years the first time. Um, we had it sold prior to 9 11 to a nonprofit. Um, it was very interesting. Um, and it would have been a bigger number than we got in the end. Um, at the time they were buying 80% of the company for 12.5 million. So they valued it at like 15, uh, million. Um, and, uh, so 
that was a non, as I said, that was a nonprofit. And we were down to the nitty gritty details. And then 9-11 hit and they just bailed completely. They said, we're not buying anybody. And it mm. was all over. So then we had to slog out another three years. And that was very hard. It's a bad three years. Because you were emotionally committed to selling, you you sort of yep. were excited about the prospects of. You know, got it. It's already shifting out. Everybody was, you know, like, what are we going to do next? And, you know, just it was just a blow. At the time, I was going through a divorce from my first wife, um, which was very painful. She was, uh, you know, um, she had her own business. She completely let it go. She was a licensed psychologist. We had a reading clinic and, um, you know, total meltdown, drug and alcohol addiction. And uh, so I really had to step in, deal with my family more. And it was just really difficult. I traveled so much for that business, as you can imagine. And it was a really tough time. That, that, that three years of slogging it out was hard, but we did. And we sold it again, this time to private equity. Yeah, I want to get to that, but but you mentioned something that I'd be remiss not to d- drill into, and that is <laughs> you mentioned that you started it with a view to selling it. You were building to sell. It took you sixteen years. Yeah. What decisions did you make along the way to prioritize building a sellable company versus what many business owners do, which is prioritizing, you know, cash flow so they can buy the boat and the goodies and all the extra things that usually come with owning a business. Like just help for, for our listeners sure. who may be going through the same decision. Do I want to build to sell or do I want to have a cash cow here? Like what decisions did you make personally <laughs> to build to sell? There were a lot of them. Um, and I, I'll just say this, and I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. Whether you're going to sell it or not sell it, the same stuff helps. It's all I can say. I mean, having open book management. So there were people who really understood how the company made money and not just me. Big deal really helped us. Strong management throughout. um, Good second tier. And then the second tier had a second tier. I mean, everybody had to have their successor in place. Um, So that was a big thing selling stock to key employees. We sold it um, as little as $15,000. We had an internal valuation formula that was based on revenue. And we would finance that to somebody for five years and they could pay for it through payroll deduction. Um, And then they got profit distributions monthly. So with combined with the open book and then sharing profits with all employees, a separate profit pool for owners, having strong management. Um, We had one database where everything went into. All client contact, all purchases, seminar registrations, anybody you talk to, it went into that one single database that was on a wide area network and was in all seven locations. We were throughout the United States, primarily Boston, San Francisco, and DC, but then some other little offices. that database was essential to us, captured everything. And when we went to sell the company, we had about 200,000 names in there. And that was very valuable to the private equity firm because they combined two companies with us. Um, so, you know, that were essentially aimed at the same audience. So there was some 
real synergy there. You know, I hate it when people make fun of that term synergy, but I make fun of tons of buzzwords, but synergy is real. If you've got a, a buyer that's in the same business you're in, you can have it. Um, not sure they ultimately achieved it, but that's another story. But so those are the kinds of things um, that I think were primary, built a very good brand, spent a lot of money on marketing. Um, so the name was very well known and it was associated with anything business related um, to the architecture, you know, audience, architecture and engineering audience. How did you go about valuing the company? You mentioned it was a multiple of revenue. What multiple yeah. of revenue we, did you put on your employee ownership plan? 50% of revenue was our, uh, was our number. So at and 19 we, million, you're valuing it around 10. Yeah. If that's nine. Yeah. If you're doing 19 million. Yeah. I mean, obviously most of the, it, it took a long time to get up to that, but 50% of revenue was really what we, we, um, we targeted. And, uh, and so you would say to a senior leader, look, I want you to buy into the business. You don't have any cash, so I'll finance it. I'll, I'll give you the money over five years yeah, and you pay me back uh, through payroll deductions. That's correct. And what was their reaction to that? Everybody wanted the stock. We created a lot of demand for the stock. We had a strong internal stock market because there was a history of appreciation. Um, there were profit distributions that were associated with that. And if you left, we paid you. Um, so, you know, it's, it, 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 strong internal market. I mean, typical, like somebody buys 15000 worth of stock in maybe six years or seven years. If they left, they'd have like $120,000, $130,000 asset potentially. And that could be significant to them. How did you, how did you pay them if they left? We had terms, buyback terms in there. Um, if they competed with us um, or, or with their own firm or joined a competitive firm, they got paid at what they paid for it or current value, whichever's less. If they just go to work for a client or go do something else or whatever, they got paid full value and it was paid out over, I don't remember, five years, something like that with an interest bearing note. We could either pay it in full immediately or we could stretch it out um, and a, a have a note um, to them for that. And that's the way we did it. Did that create pressure for you to sell the business at any time? No, it never did. We had no major shareholder leave that created a problem as it related to our capitalization. So, I mean, you know, myself and my first real partner, I mean, even at the end when we sold it, I think the two of us combined had about 80% of the company. And so, you know, the other shareholders we had, which were, I don't know, we probably had 23, 24 owners that was all spread out over that other 20, 20, 20, maybe 23%, somewhere in there was held by all those other people. You're building to sell. You have this, what looks like an exit with this not-for-profit that falls through. Yep. How did you fall into bed with a private equity company? Like, how did that all, did you shop the business? Did they come to you? Like, tell me, take me through no. that. We hired somebody. Um, it was a company that specialized in, I believe, um, 
at the time, it was like publishing and media companies. We were a difficult animal because we had these consulting and we had this other stuff. A lot of buyers, they're not interested in consulting. They think it's all tied to the individuals. They didn't realize we never made a call ever to anybody. The phone rang and we had a strong brand and that's how we sold. It wasn't because of the people necessarily as much as it was because of the brand. Uh, but that was, you know, so you had to kind of sell the potential buyers on that. But we hired a company to do it. It was a specialized company. Um, I don't remember. Ultimately, I think we paid them about $400,000 to do what they did. Um, it was it was worth it. Um, we never would have found this PE firm otherwise. So how many offers did you get on the business? Was it just... Was it just the one offer from private equity? Yeah. Did you have multiple offers? At that, Tell me it's, when we actually sold it, we just had the one offer. That was it. Okay. Yeah. And and what was their offer? Well, we were, the the bottom line, we got about $10 million out of the company. We got, um, I think we got 80% 80, 80 in cash. Um, 600000 I believe, was in a note or no. Let me think about this. Yeah, about 600000 was a note that was paid off in about 18 months. And then the rest of it was turned into ownership interest in the new entity. So we had, um, oh, I'd say, you know, a um, couple million dollars worth of ownership interest in the combined entity of us with these two other companies. Okay. So that was the Got deal. 80% cash though. in the note, we felt like, Hey, if we get that money, we were happy. We really wanted to get out. Okay. Today, if you sold that company, you'd get probably two times that maybe three um, for what it was. But you were motivated because you'd had this sort of false start. And, and yep. so this was what was on offer. And I got divorced and I got remarried and I had a new wife and I wanted to do something different. I did not want to travel like that. I just was tired of the whole thing. So again, uh, 10 million uh, valuation, 80% in cash, yep. $600,000 note, the balance, they, they rolled into a new entity. You, you rolled in as a shareholder, you rolled in yeah. uh, into this new entity and, and they, they kind of combined up two other companies, a money losing magazine company, another one, all serving this architectural consulting space. That, that makes yep. good sense to yep. me. So did you stay on as an employee of the company when the private equity guys bought you? No, I was able to leave immediately, which is what I wanted to do. Um, they said I could stay and run it if I wanted to, but I didn't want to. Um, I had a new wife uh, ready to go on to the next adventure. Didn't really want to be there. Um, so, yeah, we did not stay at all. Um, was, was immediately and did gone. did you, what about, but you rolled two, a couple million bucks worth of value into this new entity. Did you have any sort of, um, like, how are you thinking about protecting that asset? Were you, know, were you on the board or did you have any influence? This will sound crazy to you, but um, we didn't. Um, it was myself and my primary business partner, but we really didn't. We just wanted to get out of it. Um, 
So basically that all went away. We figured if it was goes away, it was no problem for us. We got what we wanted out of the deal. We were gone. We were lucky we didn't have to work three years or something. He stayed. I was glad I didn't have to stick around, uh, but we didn't get a dime out of that in the end. Why? What happened? They blew it. I mean, it's a classic case of they basically threw out every single thing that we did that made us great. They killed the company-wide bonus program. They stopped being open book. Uh, they pitted everybody against each other. Um, they just, frankly, stopped doing what made us a successful company. And it just completely cratered. We had to put, I think Fred and I put like 400000 of the money into retention bonuses. And, and that all, um, it, and that was for 18 months for the, some of the key people. And as soon as their 18 months was up, man, they were gone. Boom. They took their money, got their check, and then see you later. They all left. Um, most of those, those businesses, um, most of those people went into business, competing businesses with the firm. And, uh, and, it, and are, most of them are still out there today, in fact. Um, so it basically fragmented and sent the pieces everywhere. Um, eventually, the magazine group was carved off again and sold to somebody else. The SBA did not like this company. This uh, venture capital, or excuse me, private equity firm was an SBIC, Small Business Investment Corporation. And you know how those work for like every dollar of private money they raised, they got two or three bucks from the SBA. And so they were kind of keeping an eye on them. And these other two companies that they had acquired, um, they they had too much debt on their balance sheet. They immediately put the debt from us and these other two acquisitions. I think they had like 15 or 16 million in debt right away on the balance sheet. Um, and that SBA didn't like that. They thought it was too much in one entity. So they made them cut the magazine group out. Um, they then borrowed some money from a mezzanine fund. And I'm not I was not really ever very familiar with how mezzanine funds worked, but basically they, for our listeners who don't know, you know, they lend money to established growing companies um, at higher interest rates with no strings attached. Um, so these guys borrowed $6 million and it too was an SBIC. It was a fund. Um, and they borrowed $6 million from the mezzanine fund to go buy other companies. They bought one small company for like a million dollars. They didn't buy any others. I don't think they made a single payment. And so uh, three years after they borrowed the money, they got foreclosed on by the Mez. So by that time, the company's down to about $3.1 in revenue, has like a $6 million negative net worth, is losing over a million dollars a year. Wow. I've got so many questions about that. So before I get into some of the, the technical questions around that, I, I'd just mm -hmm. be curious to know how you felt as Fred, I'm assuming, is keeping you in the loop as people are leaving, their 18 months are coming up and they're like, I'm out of here. Yeah, you're seeing what's happening through the grapevine. I'm, I'm assuming Fred is kind of keeping you to somewhat in the loop as to what's going on. 
Yeah. Yeah, he was. What was um, that like to to see the your baby struggle <sighs> to breathe? Well, it's not it's never good. I mean, you know, you've got your your as, as anybody who builds a company like this has a certain amount of of um, you know, identification is tied up in the success of the business. And it's still got my name on it. Um so you know, you don't feel good about it. On the other hand, um, uh, it, you know, it was sad to see. On the other hand, um, uh, you know, I was able to move on quickly, which is lucky. It's part of the reason why we took the deal that we did. And it wasn't richer than it was. I was lucky to get out of there and do my own thing. I started another business pretty quickly after that and relocated and became a college professor and you know, so I was living a pretty good life, honestly. Um, but yeah, it was sad to see the company declining and I'd get calls from clients and emails from people complaining and telling me about stupid stuff they were doing. So as you look at the autopsy now, it sounds like you draw a a significant line to the culture that you created that was destroyed. And the culture, if I'm understanding correctly, was very collaborative. You, you, you had an open book team, you yep. shared, uh, you, sh you shared information, financial information, you shared profits, uh, you let people buy in. So there was shared equity. This was a Jack stack open book management sort of case study. Yes. And, and they flipped it and made it, it sounds like, more of a spreadsheet Wall Street kind of company where it's like, no, that doesn't make any sense. Why would we give all these sort of shared bonuses? Like we've got a you know meritocracy. We've got to have individual bonuses based on individual contributions. Yes. And, and, and they went from your culture to a very different culture. Is that the, the reason it failed? Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, they also did other things like just went crazy on overhead and the headquarters was in the IBM building on Wacker Drive in Chicago. And, you know, you had to go up to like the 60th floor or whatever, and then walk across a lobby and then go up again. You know, it's just too much of that stuff. Um, the the guy they put in as CEO, um, eventually he was having some kind of an affair with a marketing person. Um, and he and the CFO oh uh, uh, embezzled from the company. Um, they never got charged with any crime. We did. They were confronted and they wired some of the money back. And then there was a claim filed on the DNO insurance that paid another, I think it was about 400,000 um, that they got back that way through the DNO um, insurance. Um, but yeah, they weren't. Uh, it sounds like a soap opera. <laughs> yeah, they, they weren't running it like we did. Okay. I'll just say that, you know. Um, it just was a totally different game. Um, and, and, you know, the last thing that happened before they got taken back by their lender, I had the guy who was the chairman and the head of the private equity firm come visit me here in Fayetteville and said, when you own this company, your intercompany travel charges were never more than 20000 in a year, and now it's 400000 How do you explain that? And I said to the guy, you're a CPA. How do you explain it? Okay. I have no idea how he did that. Well, it turned out part of that was part of their scheme is 
they each had credit cards, the CEO and CFO, and they would just buy whatever they wanted. And then the company paid it and they charged it off to uh, travel, intercompany travel. And this company had, uh, you know, outside accountants that evidently didn't catch this stuff, which is mind boggling to me. You know, as I said, we had a history of audited financials because we knew we wanted to build this to sell it. And it always makes a buyer more comfortable when they know you've got good financials out there, not compilations, not reviews. We paid for an audit, you know, and uh, anyway, so, yeah. But it's like the vultures, you know, picking yeah. over the carcass. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. I just want to be clear on something. So the private equity group pays, they say 10 million, 80% in cash. You roll a bit of equity. Right. Thank goodness you, you made that a relatively small portion of the deal. Um, they take on this mezzanine debt. Yeah. And, and you said earlier that mezzanine debt, mez, mez financers, will give financing to established companies that are growing yep. um, with no strings attached. But but there was a string attached, if I'm understanding this correctly, that in the event the company defaulted, wasn't able to pay back the loan, yes. they had the rights to take over the business, which they That's, did. Yes, that is absolutely correct. So yeah, they, okay. the, the collateral is the business itself. Yep. Got it. That's helpful. Okay. Got yep. it. Okay. So they... No personal guarantee, et cetera, but they yes. all hell goes, you know, everything goes wrong, then they can take the business back, which they did. They yep. brought in the crooked guy who was a disaster. Yep. So where does it go from there? Excuse me. Well, after a year of this guy, they then um uh called me up and said, Hey, would you be willing to come back? And the first thing I said was, No, I'm a teacher here, three-quarter time professor. And I've got this other business that's rocking along and it's doing five or $10 million a year in revenue by that time. And the last thing I want is another job. Well, you know, they kept leaning on me. Then, you know, I talked to uh, my, my best friend who was my, uh, basically the manager of my other business. And, and she's like, Oh, maybe you should, you know, maybe you should do it. I said, okay, I'll work 25% time. And they said they'd pay me at the time, I think it was 166000 for 25%. And they gave me, I, I, I hate to misspeak on this stuff. Sometimes I, I, I forget exactly what the numbers were, but I think it was around uh, like 12% of the company. Maybe it was more than that. They just gave it to me. Okay. So... So, but my first task was to find a CEO who could run it. I said, oh, and I also said, the only way I'm going to do this is if I can open up an office in Fayetteville and hire some of my friends. All right. Um, and, and, and I said, um, the woman who worked for my other business, actually, she didn't work for my other business at that time, but she was my friend and I respected her. So she goes, you should do it. So I did. So she's the first person I hired. Um, and she and I are married today, but that's another story. But, um, <laughs> so she, she was the first person I hired and I set up an office here and we started to bring some of the functions here. And of course, then we encountered all the problems of discovering how this guy was sucking all the money out of the company. So on top of the fact that we had almost no staff, I think we were down to 18 people, 19 people. 
um, you know, reputations shattered, product quality is horrible, uh, tons of complaints, you know, accounts payable out the yin yang. We owed everybody uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars um, to hotels, um, uh, you know, 400,000 to this hotel, 200,000 to that one. They skipped out on office in the middle of the night. We had a judgment against us. You know, um, it this just was soap opera. Okay. It was just unbelievable. So, you know, a lot of this. So, my my uh, business manager and myself, my you know, we we just had to slog through it. We just turned this thing around. I mean, the you know, and 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 Sonia negotiated with every single person we owed money to. Got on payment plans. Even the judgment for three sixty six, she got down. What if I pay you 150000 over the next 24 months? And if I'm late by one hour, you get the whole, you can go back after me for all of it. And they went for deals like that. Okay. I mean, we did, you could say, well, that's terrible, um, you know, that you're beating these people down. But I mean, we didn't create the problem. All right. And the choice was they get nothing. I mean, we had a serious negative net worth. Um so we did, and some of the people we did pay off in full, but we got out of everything one way or another. And um, then um, the next thing was how are we going to grow this thing? Well, you know, of course, direct mail, it sort of died down over that time. And now we're into the e-marketing world. And so, you know, my first thought was we need to be emailing like crazy. I want to send out three emails a day to everybody on our list. And, you know, the the turnaround guy's like, oh, you'll kill the list. The lender's like, you'll kill. That's terrible. You'll kill the list. I'm like, I, I'm out of business like next week, you know, if we don't <laughs> sell stuff. So we just inundated the market with emails. And, John, we increased our revenue by 60% over the next two years, um, which was a huge What happened thing. to your subscribe rate? Did you lose a lot of subscribers? Uh, yeah, I, we lost some, but it, the way I look at it, it's like if for everybody who complains, if 50 people buy something, I'm like, I don't listen to the complainer. I, I, I am, I have heard this so many times. I've been in so many arguments with people. Um, I work with a company today that we went from a weekly email to sell our products and accessories to a daily email. And you know what happened? We started selling a lot more stuff. Okay. They believe it now. All right. <laughs> but anyway, so, you know, we, we did that. We made a lot of key hires. I heard back some people who used to work there, um, you know, and then in 2012, I mean, by then we kind of got the ship straightened out and we had to, the fund, the, me, the mezzanine fund that owned us was trying to close out. We knew we were up against a hard stop. So we needed to buy the company back from them in its entirety. Now, I had put another 250000 into it along the way, by the way, which gave me 42.5%, I think, of the ownership. Okay. So then I sent one email out to the CEO of a large software company that serves our industry. I had met the guy once briefly, and I said, look, you know, this, uh, I'm Mark Swig. Maybe you remember me. I've got this company that does all these things and we serve the same industry you do. And I need some money to buy it back from the lender. I explained the story. 
much more succinctly than I did today. But I need roughly $2 million to buy it back. I figure a million five, we can buy the company. And then with um, another 500000 for working capital. So I get this back from the guy. He says, yes, Mr. Swag, I remember you. I, I have very um, high regard for you and your company because I will come down there and see you with my CFO and general counsel. So he flies down here on their private plane, um, negotiates with the lender, buys, gives us the $2 million, 20% interest. They didn't want any ownership of the company. Okay, they just, he goes, look, I just want my 20%. If you give me the 20%, we'll be happy. That's all I need. So we did this. They were also advertisers and they spent three or 400,000 a year in our magazine. And we thought this is going to be great. We'll be getting more advertising out of them. It'll pay for this 20% interest, you know, and make that a manageable thing. And, and this is a great deal. All right. And he really was hands off, really a great, um, you know, he did stick me with one guy that they had that they were trying to move out of senior management and sort of saddled us with him. I think it was the way to keep his conscience clear of letting somebody go. You know, we ended up with that guy and I wasn't too high on him from the get go. I'll be honest with you. But I said, OK. So then the next thing is. um, uh, we paid that interest for 30 months. Um, that was a million dollars, 20%, 400,000 a year. And we paid a hundred thousand of the principal back. So now we were down to 1.9. At the time I did that, that transaction with them, we also brought in somebody who was going to be the future CEO. Because I was already trying to figure out how I was going to get out of this thing again. Because by now it's taken all my time and it's, you know, you can imagine what, what it's like. So where are you at at this point revenue wise? Uh, well, we started out at like 3 million and we got up to probably five um, by the time we bought it back. Uh, right around, uh, would have been uh, two and a half years later, I guess. Something like that. Okay. Yep. So we're doing about five and we're making money again. You know, we're back to making our half a million bucks a year or whatever. You know, it's, it, it, everything's calmed down and uh, still getting paid salaries. So don't get confused about EBIT listeners. <laughs> you know, I had a pretty decent salary, had my company car again, you know, all that stuff. So then, um, the next thing we did, so I brought this other guy in and, and, you know, I'm trying to train him, moving him through all areas of the business. And we hired some other really good people. And then the next thing we did is we refinanced that debt to him with a two and a half million dollar SBA 7A loan and uh, paid off the 1.9 and then had another 600,000 in working capital. Okay. And what was the interest rate on the 2.5 with the SBA? Uh, it was like six or six and a half, something like that. I mean, it was tied to prime. So it was about a third. Yeah. So now we're back into like normal land, not this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was like a 20 year amortization or something. I mean, it just dramatically with principal payments went down to like 27, 28,000 a month from 40,000 being interest only. Uh, 
or 400,000, 33,000 um, interest only. So that was good. All right. That helped things. Um, so then, um, you know, uh, everything chugged along pretty well, kept growing. Uh, and in 2018, um, again, I, you know, I'd gone through another divorce this time in 2016. And I was ready to do something else again, go back and focus on other business opportunities. And so I proposed to the, at that time, there were three other partners. One of them was my oldest daughter, who I didn't even hire initially. She was hired by somebody else that worked there. And she'd grown along and got her MBA and, and she's good. And then these two other people, the future CEO and, and, this, uh, and another woman who's very strong uh, attorney and MBA. And uh, so all three of them had their MBAs. Um, in fact, one, the CEO engineer. And so I had sort of made the baton uh, pass to him the year before. And um, so I just figured out, here's this deal that we could do that you guys could afford to do. It was a 15-year deal, okay, where basically I, I'll sell all my ownership back um, to the company on a 15-year uh, agreement, interest-bearing note and a consulting agreement. And so here it is. We're five and a half years later, and, and the payments have been made, and the company's still in business, and it's profitable. And, and uh, you know, I think so far, everybody's been pretty happy. I'm glad to be gone. How, and um, How did you value it for that? deal were you back to the multiple of revenue model or how did you think about it <laughs> i thought you know what i thought how i thought about it was this is what it's going to take for me to give up what i've got and the opportunity that this business represents and this is something you guys can afford to do i you know i hate to say i, I can't get into the specific numbers um but I, I, you know, it was affordable for them based on their, their cash flow and profitability and gave them 100% control of the company. And it was manageable and I was happy with it. Same thing, the company. What's your recourse if they don't pay? What the, only, the only thing is the company is the, is the collateral again. And if you got it back, it'd probably be in bad shape. Okay. <laughs> you're going to get it back a third time. No, I'm not. You got 10 I, more years I, to find out. I, I'm not. Um, I, 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 I don't think that's going to happen. Thankfully they're doing a fine job and everybody's getting paid and they're in good shape financially. So I'm, I'm really not worried about that. They're already out of the SBA loan. You know, it, it's. Mark, I've never asked this question. I've done 450 or so <laughs> interviews on built car radio. I've never asked this question, but I think you are the perfect guy to ask it to, because I've always wondered, and I'm, I'm not being facetious in asking this question or, or in any way trying to be cheeky, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm trying to understand why divorce is such a trigger. It seems, or in, in many cases surrounds the sale of a company. Um, You've gone through it twice, and I don't mean to shine a spotlight on that, but I do want to okay. know, like, what is it about divorce? Like, which is the chicken that comes first? You get divorced, and then you sell, you sell, then you get divorced. Like, what, what is it about uh, selling a business, why these two things are, are so oftentimes tied together? 
Well, being on wife number three, who I always tell third time's the charm, and she reminds me I'm only number two for her. Um, and I, I tell her, you can do anything you want after I'm gone. I don't care at all. Don't feel bad. Um, it's like you live a different life, John. It, it's like, you, you, you know, it sounds crazy, but it's, it, it's, it, it's so different that, you know, you, you're starting a new life in essence. And you sit back and you go, okay, this is all the stuff that happened. Is this the way I want to live? Do I want to do something different? Are you up for a quick lightning round of questions? Sure. Absolutely. Um, related to the sale of, of Zweig? The internal or external sale? Well, it's interesting. I think the most applicable for our audience would be the external sales okay. the private equity group. Okay. Um, and so let's start there. And if, if you have a different you know, um, response and we can, we can, we can change it later, but, sure. um, what was the most questionable or slimiest trick a prospective acquirer or investor tried to play on you in the process of selling your company? Warrants and reps with an unlimited amount of money for an unlimited amount of time. That's, that's always the biggie right there. Um, so basically explain you, that you're guaranteeing that everybody who works there is going to work there forever and you'll never lose a client. Okay. So that's the thing that they try to slide in on you. You know, we had a very good attorney who was extremely helpful and very knowledgeable uh, guy who was my only outside director and somebody that I had worked with extensively and trusted. And of course he got that beaten down to, 1.5 million over 18 months. And there were no uh, clawbacks at all on us from that deal. It's part of the reason why we had the 18 month golden handcuff. Biggest mistake you made personally in selling the first time around to the private equity group? I don't think I was involved enough in it. If I was to say what I think was a mistake, I was so sh mentally shifted out of the business and dealing with my personal issues that I basically let my partners handle all of it. Um, I, you know, and I'm not trying to be critical of them. They did a good job with their knowledge and the situation and the time that we were in. It was a different climate, you know, but I, I would have been more involved in if I was doing it today. I would be leading the effort. I would be more involved with it. I think I could probably do strike a better deal for sure. Um, that's probably, you know, the most um, important thing. You know, many of the people we talk to characterize selling a company as emotional roller coaster. What was your yeah. high and what was your low? Well, my high was getting a big check and, trying to figure out like if it was safe to deposit that in the bank because they've only got like a hundred thousand. I mean, really it was like a problem I'd never encountered at that time, you know? Um, so that was sort of the high, um, you know, going back, you know, three or four months later and they had a nice little party for me, you know, it got, it was great. It was fun. It was going out on a high note. Um, we weren't in financial trouble, you know, nothing like that. So that was the high point. And of course, the low point is 
just seeing what's happening afterward and hearing the stories from people and feeling like they're completely screwing things up because they want to put their stamp on it. You know, I, I think a lot of people are like that. If they take over a business, they feel like it's important that they put their stamp on it um, to claim the glory or whatever ego gratification. I don't know, but they got to be, you know, I think a lot of times you got to be super careful about that. It, it takes a lot of knowledge of a business. In a way though, it, it validated you and your model, the fact that they screwed it up so badly. Was there part of you yeah. buying it back <laughs> from the Mesdet company <laughs> was part of your motivation to prove them wrong? Absolutely. I mean, always is, you know, it's, it's, you want to restore your, your image. You want to show that you can do it. You know, all that is, is, is very much part of it. But at the same time, I'd like to think I'm not such an egocentric owner or somebody who creates a business that only works if I'm there. Cause that's not good. You know, then you're going to be trapped. You're not going to get the full value for it. Uh, you know, a lot of problems with that. You'll never get away from it anyway. They'll want you to be working there forever. Sure. You know? So, I mean, I think the second time around was a lot better from that standpoint. Um, but yeah. I, Did you, you know, buy yourself a trophy? No, <laughs> I didn't buy myself. A, I always had lots of toys and stuff. So, it was not like I needed more of them. I've had too many, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm on the reduction mode, the reduction of everything. I mean, at one point, you know, if you go back like five years ago, I had, you know, all these businesses going at the same time. Um, I had a warehouse over here with an office in it for my other business with, you know, 10 or 15 antique cars and 10 or 15 motorcycles and a bar in it, and, you know, just all this real estate. We had 67 houses, condos, apartments, 44,000 square feet of commercial real estate. Oh you know, it was just like crush. And then the two ex-wives you're still supporting and five daughters and our combined family. It's like, wow, man, I got to simplify. I don't need any trophies anymore. Honestly, there's really, I don't need anything. You know, I'm totally happy. Um, no more. I've had Rolls Royces and 911s and all that. I just don't need it. And I aspire to less. It's basically what <laughs> I want to be. Well, less. I, I wish you, I wish you uh, well in your life as a monk. And <laughs> um, where can people reach out to you? You've written an amazing book. People should pick up Confessions of an Entrepreneur. Um, they can also learn about you through LinkedIn. What's the best way for people to reach out and say hi on social? I think um, LinkedIn is the place that I go these days. I'm and we will put your email address, your LinkedIn profile, links to Confessions of an Entrepreneur, the book in the show notes that will be available at builttosell.com. Mark, awesome. thanks for doing this. Hey, thank you, John. I'm honored to be here with you. And 450 plus of these you've done. That's an unbelievable. 
I, I you must have. Well, with <laughs> guests like you and stories like yours, it makes it easy, my friend. Thank you very much. And there you have it for today's episode between John and Mark. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, I'd encourage you to share this episode out with a friend or colleague. Also, as a reminder, if you want to watch this full video interview, then head over to our YouTube channel at Built to Sell Radio. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's podcast, be sure to visit Mark's episode page, which you'll be able to find over at builttosell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, be sure to visit valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and we'll talk to you again next week.